Hi, Ken. Hi, Serge. So today we're going to be talking about relational trauma as it manifests in shame and pride as coping mechanisms? Yes. Would you like me to say more at this point? Or? Yeah, yeah. Um, well, first, just as a brief understanding of what is relational trauma, it's a term that Alan Shore, um, a term and concept that he developed, um, it's comparable to what people call um, complex trauma or complex PTSD or developmental trauma. And it's also related to what some people refer to as attachment wounds. The broadest way of understanding relational trauma is in terms of um, uh, harm uh, done by people with other people, usually uh, when we're young, by caregivers, could be parents or other caregivers or other adults. And it's harm that can be reflected in abuse of varieties of kinds, physical, sexual, emotional, and also neglect of various kinds. And neglect can be the more severe forms of persons not being cared for or being um, um, people not tuning in, but it can be also subtler but pervasive forms of really not being aware of, recognizing, seeing, feeling who the child is and what their needs are. Yeah. Um, so we're talking about the consequences of that. And for children, the experience of that, either abuse or neglect or both, being overwhelming more than their minds and bodies could handle at that point in their development, whenever it was, and that they were alone with it. They, they weren't given the support or help they needed to get through and process their experience. So that's broadly um, what relational trauma is. Mm -hmm. um, with respect to shame and pride, um, shame and pride are fundamentally about self and other and relationship. So it's not possible to experience trauma in a relationship without experiencing in some ways the, the uh, effects of shame and pride um, because they speak to the nature of the relationship and the sense of self um, in relation to the other. Yeah, so what we're talking about is that shame and pride are essentially human characteristics that we would have no matter what, but they take special form. The experience of it takes special form in the context of relational trauma. Correct. Um, and uh, Colwyn Trevarthen, who's a developmental researcher, has said that shame and pride, the nascent forms of it, form in the first years of life. So uh, sometimes developmental researchers talk about is developing somewhere between two and three. Um, my view is with him that it, it forms in the first year of life. Um, and there's even, believe it or not, some sort of very nascent forms of what are called the proto-self in utero. So we're looking at a, a sort of a developing experience of oneself as a unique being, and then of course, in relation to other beings. Right, um, right, right, right. So. So we're in a very relational context. This is not one person psychology. No, um, 
my whole premise, along with many others these days, is to always think relationally. When it comes to shame and pride, we're talking about both the experience of self with self, so intra-relational, uh, self with another, so interrelational, and a term that I came up with recently I call extra-relational, so it's self in relation to the environment or the world, not just people. Um, sense of self can be affected in terms of evaluation, meaning I value myself or I value myself in relation to others. So that would be more associated with pride. Devaluation, a sense of oneself as defective or deficient or lacking, not just in terms of a capacity, like I'm good at basketball, but I'm not so good at um, running. Um, that's not what we're talking about here. We're talking about a, a complete sense of oneself. So, um, um, pr well, pride is sometimes associated with I'm good at something. It can also be associated with who I am as a person right. um, and who I am always in relation to others. So there's a sense of I'm defective or I'm capable or competent, both as I, my sense with myself and in relation to other people. Right, right. And so in the context of relational trauma, then there's not that stability about, you know, who I am, but it's going to go either I'm above or I'm below. Right. Or it could go, I feel <clears throat> good about who I am, and I feel good about who you are, and I feel good about who we are. So of course, it can go in many different directions. But with regard to um, shame, uh, there, there are forms that are more adaptive than I feel, if you will, bad or defective. So uh, there's uh, one form of shame that is that I would call adaptive shame. Uh, my terms are good enough me shame. And the good enough me shame is basically um, I experienced something where I didn't behave in ways that were congruent for my to my values, the sense of who I want to be in the world. So it's not just like guilt. I'm concerned about how I hurt someone else. You could think of it as how I hurt myself, how I wasn't true to myself. And that kind of shame can be thought of as self-writing, R-I-G-H-T-I-N-G. So it's like, oh, that's not how I want to be. So I want to kind of take my experience of shame and kind of get myself back to how I want to be in relation to myself and treat others as well. So here we're talking about shame for hu humanity in general, as opposed mm -hmm. to relational trauma. Yes. So it's so basic, the same and pride are basic to being human and they are particularly important um, in relational trauma and in the psychotherapy of people who've experienced relational or developmental trauma. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So what, how does um, relational trauma affect that sense of self, that sense of shame, that sense of pride? So one way that I conceptualize shame and pride is I make a distinction between uh, shame or pride as an emotional process or emotions and shame and pride as a traumatic mind-body state. Now, when I make this distinction, it doesn't mean people have either or. Mm -hmm. People tend to experience all the above. So as I mentioned earlier, there can be adaptive forms of shame, the, 
what I call good enough me shame, but they're also adapted forms of pride. Pride is not always about hubris or better than. Pride is, uh, I did it. I accomplished something. Not over someone, more a sense of um, personal triumph, like Genet's act of triumph. I did it. Um, so, but there are also shames that relate to most directly to trauma. And in these forms of shame and pride, there are certain degrees of dissociation. And these are not just feelings. The feelings can be thought of as acute. They have come up and they leave, and then you have another set of the feelings. But the kinds of things we're talking about are states of mind. So sometimes when people say, I'm triggered, and then they have a triggered response, there's a sense of it takes over your whole being, and there's a kind of deja vu all over again, like here I am again feeling uh, terrible about myself. Um, here I am again feeling like I just want to crawl into a hole. And it, in those moments, it's a sense of who I am, not just, oh, I'm having that feeling again, but it'll pass. And one way of understanding that is through the understanding of dissociation. So dissociations can be thought in this case as a kind of split or divide between the me, let's say, who are just going on my everyday life, and the me who is triggered in a way that's, um, let's say, regarding traumatic shame, where suddenly my whole being is taken over. And then when I'm in that state, I believe this is who I am, past present and future, and it won't change. And this is particularly um, pertinent in therapy when you're working with survivors of relational trauma. And it's the thing that therapists are most uh, want help with and struggle with because, you know, when a person feels shame and you help them deal with that feeling, they can often move through it. But when they're in a shame state, the person's experience is this is simply who I am. And if you were to say, but wait a minute, you have all these wonderful qualities. You have a spouse who loves you. You have children who want to be with you. You have a, a job that is meaningful contribution. If the person is in a state of what I would call a shame state, um, Judith Herman came up with that term. This is a traumatic state of shame. Then you can say all sorts of things that are true. And they might say yes, but the internal experiences, no. Um, so it's kind of a silo. It's kind of a silo that inside that silo, it's impossible to see beyond the walls of the silo. And they might have, uh, you know, just a nod when you say, yeah, you, you have this and this and that but it doesn't, you know, connect at an emotional and an experiential level. It's just an empty thought. Yeah. It's like, uh, it, it would be the, uh, the metaphorically it'd be like, you're talking to that person over there, like just over my shoulder, but that's not me. And one way to divide the silo, because I think that's an excellent term that fits generally with trauma and specifically with, in this case, we're talking about shame states but you can think of it as dissociation vis-a-vis -a, -vis a specific aspect of the person or the sense of the whole person. So a specific aspect may mean, let's say I grew up in a family where there was violence and emotional abuse, and the person without thought developed uh, the sense that anger was bad, therefore shameful. The person may unconsciously split off from their own anger in themselves or others. And if their anger comes up, because sometimes, you know, the dissociation, quote unquote, doesn't work. In other words, the now the 
experiences available to their consciousness and their emotions, then they might drop into a shame state because they feel angry. Um, and that would be an example of what I call not, excuse me, not be shame, which is an aspect of self. But there's something that can be thought of as no me shame. Uh, there's an author by the name of Vili, I guess, W-I-L-L-E, and he talks about the shame of existing. So this is just the shame of being. It's not based on a specific quality. It's a sense of the whole person. Um, and for these people, um, specific qualities have no meaning. Positive, you know, fundamentally, there's something that is um, experienced as uh, I am not deserving of being. And there is absolutely no valuable, no value to me as a person or me in relationship to others. So it can be quite profound. And persons can experience these different forms of shame. Shame as an emotion, maladaptive or adaptive, shame as an aspect of self in a traumatic state, or shame as the whole being, depending on, to use your words, which silo they may fall into at different times. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, so that, uh, so very clearly what's happening is then there is a dissociation from anything that is not shame in either of the three forms you describe. Yeah. Yes, there's, um, and these, these are all relational. So I say, well, why would a person split off from their anger? And then if they experience it in themselves or others, there'd be shame associated. Well, that's because anger became a threat to the bond, right? If, if someone is angry with me, but for me to be angry, like a caregiver, for, for me to be angry back means they'll abuse me or stop talking to me, or have nothing to do with me, or treat me like I'm worthless, then it would make sense. It's adaptive to dissociate from that experience. And therefore, when the experience comes up, it's adaptive to silence or suppress it. And shame is one of the most powerful ways to stop a person in their tracks, because it is so unbearably painful. It's like a shock to the system. And that's the first thing that you experience. So, so we're describing shame in this case as a mechanism that is used by the trauma, by the person dealing with something unmanageable to cope with it, because shame is the instrument that allows them to control unconsciously what it is that would be too dangerous for them to fall into, in this case, anger. Right, and, in, and always in relationship to the other person or in relationship to themselves. And as you say, it's unconscious. No one says, well, this would be a good time to feel shame so I don't threaten the bond. Right, um, right. Shame so, is so powerfully painful, there, there's no way a person seeks uh, or to, to feel terrible about themselves. Right, right. But so, so it's, it's something that, that functions as a means to an end. It's a, it's a built-in circuit that we have, and this is recruited by the mind in that moment, the nervous system, as a way to cope with this situation. Yeah, and it, you know, we're a whole human being, so that means a kind of inter profound interruption of one's thoughts, of one's feelings. Shame can be attached to any emotion, any thought, and any behavior. So a person can feel shame 
for experiencing success. And you think, well, why would they feel that? Well, because somehow they experience success as a, as a, um, a threat or a danger in their most significant relationships. Right. Um, so it's interrupted, interrupted self. You know, there's a moment, there's a, a circuit, you know, a switch. Um, and that's that function that shame has. Yes, it's interrupted self. And in the broadest sense, it's interrupted being. And mm-hmm. going on being to, you know, to follow Winnicott and to going on being in relation to other people and in relation to yourself. Because, of course, these things become internalized. So um, it's not just I feel shame when you get mad at me. Um, I get mad at me when I feel X, Y, and Z. And one of the manifestations of I'm mad with myself is feeling that I'm uh, defective or deficient or uh, something fundamentally wrong, unlovable, unworthy about me. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And so that's the case of um, shame in one aspect of functioning. Mm-hmm. And what about, you know, how does the shame of the whole being uh, come about? You know, my experience of that form of shame is not what most people would maybe think of, which is that they're, um, uh, overtly abused, um, talked to in a, in a um, demeaning, degrading, debasing way. That is one form. If you're hated, then you as your whole being does not, is not worthy of living. So that's one form. But often what happens is more that the person is treated as though they are not there. So for example, one person I worked with that I write about in some of my articles and in my forthcoming book talks about this person experienced all forms of shame, including adaptive ones. But one of the ways she expressed um, what I call no being shame, that shame of existing, is um, this way. First, she said that when she was with her father, it was as though he looked right through her. Like she simply wasn't there. She was invisible. And when she took her spouse, she had a very good relationship with her husband. When she took her husband to meet the father, he had the exact same experience. It was as if he wasn't there. So, and the particular form that this took was this person loved to fly uh, as a pilot, um, amateur pilot, not professional. And Uh, she would have the experience of at times having this overwhelming terror that she would, that she would, the the floor would open up and she would drop out or she would walk off the wing, like she was outside, walk off the wing and fall. And at first I thought, well, that means she would fall and die. She said, no, it's as though I cease to be. So it's not like I would get hurt. I would disappear. And at the time, I didn't fully understand it. So sometimes, you know, you learn things many mm-hmm. years later. So I realized this was, this was a, a body memory. This was her mind body telling her, you've already been through this. You've already experienced disappearing, becoming invisible. This is not a theory. This is a lived experience. And it was, of course, terrifying because if you cease to be, 
what could be more frightening than that? So, so that's the equivalent of um, looking at yourself in the mirror, the sense of other people reflect who we are. And so she looks at herself in the mirror and there's nothing reflected. And so there's she nothing. doesn't exist. She doesn't exist. That's, that's a beautiful way of describing it. Yes. And for this particular person, um, they were, when this happened, it was, it was, a, it was dread. It was panic. Um, mm-hmm. It was overwhelming. But other people, they, because that's so unbearably painful, they would dissociate in the sense of going numb. So there'd be kind of emotional flatness or blankness. And um, so they're, they're like, uh, they're walking through life, but they don't feel alive. Mm-hmm. So it, it's only in these moments where it kind of hits them and a kind of the memory comes back again, visceral memory, that there would be a panic, but day to day, it would be more an experience like uh, could be closer to like depersonalization. Like I'm, you know, I don't feel me. I don't feel alive. I don't Mm -hmm. feel real. You don't feel real. This relationship isn't real. Yes. I go through the motions. Yes. You tell me good job and you pay me, but really I'm not here. Right. Right. And these are the things, those experiences that are the most difficult to work with in therapy because when you say to the person well what happened what happened to you if they haven't been abused but they were treated as though they weren't there their typical response is nothing happened Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. but what i'm curious about in the case of the person you're describing the the pilot you know Mm -hmm. is up here um what would be the trigger to to get that No. Uh, well, it was always when they were flying. Mm-hmm. So that's number one. It would happen in flight. Um, but it was, it would, I think, um, I think in retrospect, um, I don't think I fully understood it at the time, but in retrospect, I think it was because they experienced this kind of emotional neglect that I'm referring to. And there's also in, in their history, sexual trauma. So I think what was happening at this point in their life is whatever ways they coped, which in their case involved a lot of dissociation, it was, it, if you will, the memories, in this case, body, emotional memories, not I remember the time mm-hmm, when, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, they, they were coming back up. Not that they, were, they were coming up and they didn't understand what was happening. So we're talking about now they're in their 40s. They, they don't, they're not saying, oh, I'm remembering these bad things that happened to me. No, they're having these visceral experiences. They're having the panic. In their case, they were afraid, I'm never going to be able to fly again. And they'd love to fly. So right. the trigger was, if you will, life. In, in their case, probably their life was in a better place. They had a relationship with someone that it was a good relationship. They had a job where they were successful. So in some ways, there was some stability in their lives. And then that made it uh, in some ways more available, you know, when it's safe, now it's quote, safe to feel safe to remember. Of course, none of this being conscious. Right. Um, right, right. I know. I'm curious about that sense of, um, you know, possibly is it the sense of having a mastery of doing something complicated and fairly dangerous, like, or relatively like flying a plane, Uh, that brings about the sense of, no, you don't exist, you can't do it, or something of that nature. 
I don't know that I thought of it that way until now. And I think it's a great example. This person uh, very much needed to feel in control. Mm -hmm. They also needed to feel some great emotional distance between themselves and other people, uh, other than their spouse and, and, or, and pets. So um, this gave them a sense of control. And this gave them a sense of a quote unquote, literally being above it all. So those were, those were needs that, and, and not to mention it made them feel special uh, on some level because not everyone can fly a plane. So right. it was a capacity, capacity, a mastery, a sense of I can do it, a sense of uh, some special capacity and ability, but also distance. You know, it kept them, it allowed them to look at the world and the terrain from a great distance. So mm-hmm. it, it was not as threatening in terms of um, relational intimacy. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, and so you were saying this is very difficult to deal with in therapy. Yes, with that particular person, um, I had enough wherewithal to know this has got to be related to trauma. But at the time, I didn't really know how to work with trauma. So I remember I would say to my patient, I'd say, as, as things would come up, as these visceral experiences would come up, either relation to the sexual trauma or um, the the experience of feeling invisible. And again, they were very prone to feeling terrible about themselves. Even though if you looked at their lives, you would say they're doing, they're doing quite well. They're successful at work. They have a partner that they love and feel loved by, et cetera. So what would happen is they would have these reactions or they would feel um, uh, completely inadequate in ways that didn't match my experience of them. And I knew it had to be related to trauma and I didn't know how to help them. And we had an excellent rapport. We, we really fit well together. And they were very honest. And they would say, when I say something about this related trauma, they said, okay, okay, thank you. Um, but help me. And I had no idea. <laughs> so it, this particular person ended up teaching me uh, a lot about trauma. And they basically pushed me without telling me to do this, to learning about different ways of working with trauma. So that's where I began to learn a little bit about EMDR. That's where I began to learn about um, AEDP, uh, learn about sensory motor psychotherapy, coherence therapy. There was a lot of approaches that I ended up learning some or a lot about because I frankly didn't know how to help them. They didn't want to go work with someone else. We had a great rapport. So they basically, you know, directly or indirectly said, help me. <laughs> so so um, I didn't have a way of understanding it the way I understand now. But, you know, you look back and they become your greatest teacher. Yeah, 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 yeah. And so, you know, fast forward to the present. Uh, in a case like this, in, in these case of dealing with, with shame that comes as a result of trauma, relational trauma, you know, uh, are there some pointers, some things that you do that, you know, uh, or do you simply deal with it as you would any case of trauma? No, I, well, both yes and. Okay. Um, 
Um, In my book, I have a chapter of sort of basic attitudes and principles and concepts that help you in working with shame and pride and relational trauma. And my first little section is there's no such thing as shame, shame and pride therapy. And what I meant is not there's no way to work with it. But fundamentally, if you're working with a sense of who you are as a person, then the most powerful thing you can do is be real with that person and see them as real people and actually take pleasure in who they are. So um, not as a technique. There's no such thing as, you know, I'm going to now see you, feel you, recognize you. This is not a method. In fact, anything that looks like a method for people who've experienced this kind of relational trauma they often will feel like you're being techniquey and you're quote doing something to them. And they've already experienced people doing things to them or not doing for them in ways that were um, overwhelming and incredibly harmful. So they don't need you to do techniques. So anything you do methodologically in terms of an approach, it has to be integrated in the sense of this is relationship and it's a natural kind of outgrowth of the relationship. But one of the things that um, helps is, and again, you could say this helps with all trauma, but particularly in relationship to shame and pride, is that it requires of the therapist to to, uh, see them as whole and as more than whole as, if you will, wonderful as a human being, a unique human being. And the concept that I, the term I use for that is called pro-being pride. Um, I did not develop the phenomena. The phenomena is something we all experience when, for example, um, if we have a child, a newborn, they come into the world and we go, (gasps) so we have this automatic expressed delight. And you say, well, why are you responding that way? The child hasn't done anything. That's exactly right. The child simply is, and he or she is their unique self. And so I am experiencing this in relation, not just as a parent, but I will experience it in relation to the people I work with. And I will experience it when something about them comes through that is uniquely them. It could be something that they're interested in. It could be a tone of voice. It could be how they hold their head. It could be the creative ways they responded to their trauma that says that is uniquely who they are. And when I experience that, I'm feeling internally this pleasure and joy in them being with me and me being with them. This could be, there could be talking about things that are unbearably painful, um, but at the same time, I'm feeling like, wow, they are there, and excuse me, and I am there, and um, we are having this experience together. And that, that particular term pro-being pride comes from the word origin of proud, which is a Latin word, and it's spelled P-R-O-D-E-S-S-E. Prodessa is, I guess, how you might say it. And P-R-O-D is for, F-O-R. And Essa is uh, um, to be, and for me, it's being. So this is, I'm for you being you. I'm for you being you and taking pleasure in you being you. And I'm for me being me, taking pleasure in me being me with you and you being that way with me and with yourself. So there's pro being that relates to self with self. I'm taking pleasure in being 
being and being alive in my unique way and as well as in relation to your other person or group but also in relation to the environment you know the experience of the joy of being alive when you hike in the woods for example yeah yeah so i am that sense of yeah i am and you are that's right and and we are and we are yeah and this, to my mind, is the most powerful antidote to shame. If I'm having the experience of celebrating who you are, and you are having the experience of celebrating who you are in relation to me or others, you cannot feel shame at the same time. It's simply not possible. Right. And these experiences of what I'm calling pro-being pride, they're not abstract. They can happen all the time. I can have this experience with you right now if we're really enjoying not just what we're talking about, but enjoying just discovering who Serge is and Ken is and who Serge. I mean, we're kind of co-creating something right now that, you know, this was not planned five minutes ago, but here we are. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, so that's that very, that, 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 you know, um, I'm trying to find words for it, and maybe the difficulty of finding words for it is because it is it is such a nonverbal right. experience, you know yes. that um, you know kind of putting words to it puts it in a category where it's more thought out. Yes, uh, yes, and and there is something that's very visceral about that sense yes. of a, you know, um, hmm, yeah. yes, um, when I've worked with this what i this experience of pro being pride it will show up um physically so it'll show up for me um i i usually get a kind of tingling feeling a sensation of tingling it's often in my arms could be other places in my body i also get a sense of kind of uh my chest just comfortably expands i feel a kind of energy arising. I feel excited. I can be excited when they're talking about something that's painful. It's not like I'm happy. Pro-being pride is not happiness. You can feel this kind of enlivenment um, when you're grieving with others who are grieving the loss of a loved one. So it isn't about necessarily happy, but physically it'll show up. Um, and often when I'm feeling this kind of energetic aliveness, with whether I, excuse me, say this to the other person or not, often they are too. So this is, as you, as you might say, co-created, but not yeah. in some intellectual, even emotional sense. It's quite visceral. Mm -hmm, um, mm -hmm. And, and yeah. when this happens, the whole session comes alive and, and it opens up all sorts of possibilities that wouldn't be available a moment before. No, I love I love that concept of that uh, you know pro being pride. Uh, I I think of that experience as something that feels very similar to that experience, as you know something that's co-created stimulation or co-created creativity or a sense that uh, you know the client and the therapist are each in process. But what I like about your concept of uh, pro being pride is it's not related to a doing. You know, it's uh, it's a it's an experience, and as you're describing what it feels like, uh, you know, it feels like a very nice way to have that kind of gentle checklist in the session to see, oh, am I there? Mm -hmm. uh, and and so it's not a critical of you know uh, I should be 
um, no. you know, uh, very, uh, uh, very accepting of people, or I should right. do this, but just what's happening in my internal state. Yes. And if I am in that state, you know, it means yes. that, you know, this is my experience of the field. And yes. so, and then the field is going to be moved and the client, you know, as I adjust to that state. Absolutely. And I think state is the right word because you remember before I was talking about traumatic states of mind mm -hmm. with regard mm -hmm. to shame states or pride states. Well, this is a state as well, but I, I, rather than call it a chronic state, I call it an enduring state. And it's one that can be reconnected with. So it is a state. It's not a feeling of pride. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. There are adaptive forms of pride, but this is not a feeling of pride. This is, this is uh, the experience of taking pleasure in being alive. Right? Yeah, this is yeah. akin to the joie de vivre. And so um, when you experience this with someone, Sometimes the therapist experiences it before the patient experiences it. So sometimes the patient will be talking about um, whatever. It could be something quite painful. And for whatever reason, I get a glimmer of something. Like sometimes for me, I'll get an image of them as an infant or a young child but before any trauma happened. Or sometimes I'll get an image or sense of them um, uh, at older uh, after there's been healing, after there's been transformation, after the therapy or other aspects of their life uh, has been successful. Um, or sometimes it's just they use an idiosyncratic word. And I'm like, that is so interesting. This is internal at first. Mm -hmm. It's so interesting that at that moment they use that word. Or in that moment when they're talking about something so excruciating, they also, whatever, uh, they mentioned a song. And suddenly I get this experience like we're in another, there's a possibility of another a realm of being and being in relationship that just showed up, even if it's in a tiny moment. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. if you bring attention to it, so we talk about processing traumatic memory, you can process the experience of pro-being pride. and. It, it could be because it comes up as a result of the work where the person comes through some really a difficult work and they feel not only proud of themselves, you know, what Janae would call um, the, an act of triumph, they, they actually feel alive. And in this aliveness, they feel integrated. They feel connected with themselves. They feel connected with you. They feel connected with nature and they're just, they're just alive. If, yeah, yeah. if you, when this happens, when this experience of what I call pro being bright shows up, however you get there, if you bring your attention to it, you can process pro being pride as you would process a traumatic state. So you're, it's what I call um, somewhat facetiously um, pro being pride on steroids. So you're just having this experience and you're bringing together with the patient, your own aliveness in relationship to their aliveness. And it, it can open things up in absolutely remarkable ways where people right. end up having experiences that, you know, are akin to um, transformative spiritual experiences in, you know, in other traditions. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah, because there's a resonance that, that amplifies that experience. Absolutely. Yeah. For, for both for both people for both people yeah yeah yeah, yeah. because you, it would not you, it would not it just 
does not compute if it's just for one person in that case. It's really the whole being. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. That and well so, said. so it feels very clear, you know, that we're talking about um, in the traumatic state and that that uh, that uh, uh, shame state. Um, you know, which is, you know, say like a silo, you cannot get out. And this right. is a way in which it's possible to actually go beyond the walls of the silo and access another state. Yes. And that with the connection, you amplify that other state um, yes. so that the person is, you know, literally stepping out of the box. Yes. And, you know, if you think about it from a perspective of memory reconsolidation, you have one state that co-occurs with another state that, that are both experienced as true, right? I'm alive, I'm deadened, I'm worthless, I'm uh, taking great pleasure in simply being myself with you, right? These are, co- these are states that tend to use your words well, get siloed. If they're experienced at the same time, from a memory reconsolidation perspective, they're both true, but they can't both be true. And this allows for transformation in deep ways and lasting ways. But to, you know, to be clear, I'm not saying this is always going to happen this way. So you can mm-hmm. have other experiences where a person is experiencing a trauma state and you develop through the relationship and through the capacity to take some distance and observe the person over time with support of the therapist and other sometimes approaches gets to a place where increasingly they can observe the traumatic state. So this, of course, is a sine qua non of trauma work generally, but specifically right. it's this. So, And this is really important because if you're witnessing yourself in a shame state, you're both 100% believing there's something fundamentally defective about you And then there's the you observing that and the you observing that cannot be fundamentally defective. It's not possible. So they're both in the state and observing the state. And then, you know, you develop through the course of the work, a particular way of observing. So that is congruent with other trauma work. It's mindful. It's I'm interested. I'm curious. I don't take at face value when the person says I have no worth. I don't take it as true. I don't take it as at the same time, not making sense in some relational context. You know, it may have made perfect sense to believe you're worthless if, yeah. if that was your experience um, repeatedly. Right, right, right. And so it's interesting because more than in any other uh, experience of trauma, the person who feels worthless will, by definition, have great difficulty in staying with a sense of feeling good about themselves. So um, what you're doing with noticing that pro-being pride and joining in is giving them company. Um, right. And, uh, you know, allowing this to stay as opposed to trigger the right. shame that goes back into the right. trauma mode. Right. And even if they're not in a state of pro-being, per se, but they mm-hmm. have developed the capacity through the work or other, you know, sometimes the person can develop it through meditation as well as psychotherapy, but, you know, develop the capacity to observe, even if they're not in a pro-being pride state per se, but they have a capacity to sort of 
notice with interest and curiosity. Then you bring something to bear. So if they'd say, uh, if you will, like a young part of the person, uh, a six-year-old part that was uh, abused. If that person, because of abuse, has come to the implicit conclusion there's something fundamentally wrong, but at the same time, the person, the patient in the present, has a capacity as an adult to take interest in this young part, then there's already the beginnings of uh, a possibility of something different happening. Right. This is not another part of the person saying, oh, you're a good kid. This is an, another, if you will, experience of the person as an adult taking interest. If you take interest in someone, that means implicitly they're interesting. And if they're interesting, they're implicitly, number one, they exist mm -hmm. and, they mm -hmm. and they matter. And you don't have to tell them they exist and matter. Taking interest is experienced as mattering. And if the taking interest, whether it's from the person as an adult with a part of self or the therapist, if the taking interest is um, rejected or thwarted, then you can take interest in the part that protected them from your interest. Mm. Yeah, 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 yeah. So there's, um, you know, a sense of whatever happens, there is something interesting in there. And yes. it is exemplified by the attitude of the therapist who is interested. Right. Uh, and who is interested both in the person, but also interested in the process. Yes. Well said. And, you know, you, you develop certain language to convey this interest so, you know, a common word that I use, but I'm sure many other therapists do is, you know, I say, let's get curious because curious is again, an expression of interest and an implicit expression of value. I value you and I value what you're saying. And I value your experience. So over time, if you've hung out with me in therapy a lot of they, my clients might, you know, my patients might joke and they might say, oh, I, I thought of you this week and I just heard that voice. Let's get curious. And, you know, they kind of tease me about it, but that's what we want, right? Because the shame state says, I already know what this means. I have no question what it means. It means I'm a horrible human being. I always was. I am now and I always will be, which of course engenders despair. If, you're, if that's who you are, then you will never feel loved or feel like your love matters. So if you get curious about the experience of that being, you're already opening the possibility that that can't be the whole story without telling the person now that can't be the whole story. Yeah, yeah no, but that's beautiful. I like that phrase, so let's be curious. Think about shame as something where physiologically there's kind of a narrowing, well uh, you know, the yeah. head coming down, the eye, the, uh, the gaze kind of getting into a, a narrower perspective. And then let's right. be curious is actually kind of an opening. And, right. and it's, an, it's an opening that is a let's be, it's both of the therapist and the client. So it's not alone and right. opening. So there's right. kind of an invitation to a different state just by itself. Exactly. Um, again, in my book, I have a chapter and it talks about the phenomenology of shame and pride, particularly these traumatic states. And one part of it talks about how attention works. And this, what you just described is a kind of narrowing of attention. So one way shame works is it focuses on one thing, 
like before I was talking about anger, um, that's experienced as a threat in the relationship. So let's say anger now is associated with I'm a bad person. So it takes one thing and that one thing becomes the whole and it becomes rigid. So anytime I'm angry, I'm bad. And by extension, I must be bad as a person. So the, the goal of therapy is to have greater flexibility in a way that is a kind of a, a widening when that's needed and a narrowing when that's needed, right? This is the whole me. Well, let's look at it. This is you angry. Maybe it's not the whole you, maybe it's you angry. So that's taking the whole and making it narrow where they say, this is the whole world. And it's like, okay, yeah. Um, wait a minute. 10 minutes ago, you were describing the walk with your daughter. You, that wasn't, you weren't describing that 10 minutes ago. Great. Now they might discount it, but that's actually, now we're gone from specific to wide and wide back to specific. And it's that flexibility that, that makes possible transformation over time, of course. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But so as you're talking, I'm paying attention to your body language. Uh-huh. And so I'm kind of curious to invite you yeah. to check inside how would you, what's your experience when you're in that moment? Um, well, you know, um, I get delighted. <laughs> Right. I, I, I love talking about this. So I, I'm not seeing my face right now, but I'm sure it's lighting up because that's how I'm feeling internally. Right. And my yeah. hands are expressive. So I'm going from here to there and there to here. And to me, it's like a, almost like I'm playing a game, but the game I'm playing is with myself and with you. Right. So, so my body in, is uh, engaged just as my mind is in something that I delight in. So this way of being is in part an expression of me. If you, if you got to know me uh, and you saw me engage in something that was interesting or meaningful to me, this is kind of who I am. Um, right. Am I right. like this all the time? No, sometimes I'm more reflective, etc. But those, you know, th- th- I think what you're picking up is energetically um, me being me. And in this case, me being me with you, because we're, we have a shared interest here and we're uh, looking at this together. Yeah, 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 yeah. No, I, I can see, I can hear it. I can perceive it that way in terms of what we're doing. And I can hear it in terms of what's happening when you're engaging with a client in that mode. And so there's something that feels like, yeah, this is good. This is really yeah, this is I, I I come alive when I do that, and there is, uh, uh, you know, and a, and an, I, the word that keeps coming back is engagement. You know, yeah. let's play together, let's do it together. The sense of uh, right, you know, I'm going to show you the way, or something of that nature that feels like um, the wanting to share something. I'm not, you know, that's mm-hmm. that's kind of what I'm sensing in that. Absolutely, yeah, and you know, when you're having that engagement. Um, there's no, there's no, uh, you're not thinking methodology. You're not thinking technique. Mm-hmm. Uh, there might be uh, approaches to working that become available to you in that moment, but it's, it's incredibly spontaneous. And this is just that experience is a profound antidote to shame because shame basically says nothing's going to change this kind of shame, traumatic shame. Nothing is going to change. This is just who I am. 
Right. Okay. So if this is who I am, and then, you know, people say, um, well, what happened is sometimes that'll be part of their experience. And then later in the session, something opens up and I will say to them, um, could you or I have predicted this? Do we even know what's going to happen a minute from now? So basically, it's a direct contrast to the, the rigidity of a sense of self, both mind and body, in the shame state versus a fluidity and engagement and aliveness. And the person is, can, cannot argue with you that something just happened and that that something does not hold with the thing that you were saying five minutes ago about how you know, you're stuck and this will never change. Yeah, yeah, yeah. This is who and, I am. And, and what strikes me is beyond the, the more logical words that you use, the contrast uh, that calls on physical embodied experience of rigidity versus fluidity. Yes. I mean, the, the concepts, as you um, rightly point out, are concepts. The experience is the experience, and the experience is always uh, in the body and emotionally, and all of that, if you will, from the bottom up, is is uh, where the concepts get expressed. So, I'm telling you about ideas, but I'm feeling it. I'm, and I hope, as I tell you, you feel a little bit of your own interest and excitement and make it your own. Yeah, yeah, no, very much so. Yeah. Yeah. So let's just take a moment to see if it feels right to stop here, or is there something that you might want to add? Well, um, I think what I'd like to say is that once you have a way of um, paying attention to the kinds of experiences I'm talking about. And in this case, concepts can help because it gives you a way to think, kind of think and notice and also to organize yourself because this is hard work when, when traumatic shame states or the other side, pride states, you know, a person is sort of behaving in ways that appear very arrogant or narcissistic. This is hard stuff. And it brings up very powerful feelings in the therapist. Uh, either the therapist's own shame or the therapist reacting with their own hubris, like, I can't believe you treated me that way. This is hard stuff. So the one thing I would say is that as you have a way of organizing this and familiarity with the experience, you will start seeing shame and pride showing up all the time. And it's not just that you're projecting it, it's just there. And once you think of it, you think, well, of course it would, because we're talking about a sense of oneself and a sense of the other in a relationship. So why wouldn't it show up? But once they become aware of it, it's actually quite helpful because then you have a way of talking about things that previously you might've talked about it differently. So what was previously depression is now includes shame or what was previously performance anxiety now includes the anxiety of who I'm going to be thought of when I put myself out there or social anxiety or, or any number of ways or dissociation. Like why did the person just check out? Well, if we can notice right before we might notice they just got a little hit of shame, but they weren't conscious of, and then they left. So the more you have ways of observing and noticing as a therapist, it empowers you, but also patients are empowered. So my patients often come to 
comfortably use the word shame when these experiences come up. And then it's not so confusing to them why they reacted this way. It starts making sense and they have something they can begin to do about it. Beautiful. Yeah, yeah. So there's, uh, the, there's the agent is identified. Yes, absolutely. And agency gives us um, uh, normal, natural, adaptive experiences of pride. I can. I am mm-hmm. able. I, I succeeded. With your help, we succeeded. And all of that is um, pride in the, in the best sense of the word. I am good enough, and we have achieved something that I feel good about. So agency and pride go hand in hand, as well as, you know, helplessness and powerlessness goes hand in hand with the experience of shame. Yeah, yeah. Thanks, Ken. Thank you, Serge. This is part of the Active Pause podcast. To see more and subscribe to the newsletter, go to activepause.com.